0: your praises your spirit saves us your spirit sustains us we want more of your presence in our lives we pray that this morning you would be here that we would sense your spirit's presence that you would lead us and that we would hear your word and be conformed to the image of your son and I pray that you would bless this time for your glory, we ask in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In J.R.R. Tolkien's masterpiece, The Lord of the Rings, you know I like the, that series. I, I mention it somewhat frequently. The Lord of the Rings, he describes this race of humanoid creatures from Middle Earth called orcs. Now, if you're not familiar, the orcs are very evil. They're hideous, they're filthy, they're cannibalistic. Tolkien describes the orcs as having fangs and crooked legs and crooked backs. And they serve their evil master, the dark lord Sauron, and they seek to kill or enslave all those who love what is good or all those who would oppose the darkness. And so Tolkien very skillfully uses Mordor, which is the dark land with the, the black gate. This black land is where Sauron rules. And, and it's a metaphor for how the kingdom of Satan currently is ruling in this world. And there are two kingdoms. There are only two. The kingdom of, of light, the kingdom of Christ, where all those who love him are part of his kingdom and they love the king, Jesus. And then there's a kingdom of darkness that opposes all that is good. And our world is currently shrouded in darkness. And much like the orcs in Lord of the Rings are our members of this kingdom of darkness, are people today who don't know better and they're part of the kingdom of darkness. Now, in Lord of the Rings, for a human to love or to marry an orc would be utterly repulsive. It would be unthinkable. It would be impossible. An orc would first have to be transformed to something different, like an elf or a human. And then, and then of course, a human would love and marry an orc. But outside of transformation, a member of the kingdom of darkness could never possibly hope to love or marry a member of the kingdom of light. Keep this image in your mind as we continue today, as we'll be completing Ezra. We'll pick up in Nehemiah next week in the series in these two Old Testament books called Restoration, the Gospel in Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm going to give you just brief background and context for Ezra, especially if you're here for the first time. Many years ago, God created a people for himself. God created a people that would belong to his kingdom. People who would no longer belong to the dark kingdom ruled by Satan. See, God's people would be made new. They would be restored. They would be transformed into being new creations. See, and God called his people to worship him alone. But sadly, God's people did not worship him. Instead, they turned to idols, and they found their joy, they found their meaning in worshiping other things that were created versus worshiping the creator. And so God being holy, God cannot stand in the presence of sin. He does not tolerate sin, so God sent his judgment on the people of Israel, and he sent them into exile. And for 70 years, the Israelites lived in modern-day Iraq, in exile. But we have a God who is faithful. We have a God who never gives up on his promises and never gives up on his people. And so by God's grace, he then restored his people back to the land of promise, to Judah. And He empowered them to rebuild their lives and to rebuild their homes and to rebuild the temple that had previously been destroyed. And we saw this two weeks ago in Ezra 7 and 8. God brings a priest named Ezra to teach the Bible so they would know their God so that they could read his word. And they would then have their lives restored back to God. And we are no different today. We are a broken people. And our God meets us right here in our brokenness. And through the power of His Spirit, He makes us new. He recreates us to be new creatures with a new heart, to be alive spiritually and to have new desires, desires to please the King and and to hate our sin. And so we have been restored And so, as disciples of Jesus, if you are here today and you have repented of your sins and you are trusting in Jesus alone to save you, if Jesus is your God, your master, then you live in this tension called the now but not yet. All of us who follow Jesus live in this now but not yet. We now, right now, have already been declared righteous, we have been justified. We have been adopted into his family. We have already been restored to a relationship with God. We have all of these remarkable blessings right now. Jesus is king over his people right now. So you're a believer in Christ. You have a restored relationship with God now. You're accepted by God. You have his approval. But we also live in the not yet of this tension. We are not yet in heaven We are not yet glorified. Our sanctification is not yet complete. It's still ongoing. And so we live in the already but not yet where we continue to need more of God's healing and more of His restoring work and presence in different areas of our lives. What about you? Do you find yourself on this Friday morning somewhat far from God? Do you find yourself recognizing your need for God's restoration? Maybe you're wondering, well, how? How does that work? How, how can I experience the, this healing, transforming restoration that you're talking about? Well, that's what we're asking this morning. This is the key question. on the screens. So how does this work? How exactly? do we experience the restoration of God? How does this work, even in our daily lives, how do we experience the restoration of God? We're going to be studying Ezra 9 and 10 today. We're going to see God's path to restoration. Let's begin by reading Ezra 9, verses 1 through 9. Things had been done. Approach. should I just use a handheld no <laughs> okay. let's try this is that better so Ezra 9 we're l- looking at verses 1 through 9 After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites." For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who tremble at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. But now for a brief moment, favor us been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery, for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us in his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. This is a profound text that reveals God's path to restoration. Let me give you number one. This is, these are the steps God has revealed for how we can experience his restoring. Number one is seeing the stunning holiness of God. So if you want to experience God's restoration, here's where it begins. You have to see the truly stunning holiness of our God. See, in chapters 7 and 8 here of Ezra, he had committed himself to teach the word of God. And so the Israelites have been hearing God's word. And so what's amazing is they come to him. And so the people, the the officials come to Ezra and they say, now you've been teaching us God's word. And now we're seeing who God is and we're seeing his holiness. And so do you see this connection? By hearing the word, we then see the holiness of God. We receive the eyes of faith. And having the eyes of faith comes only by hearing the word of God. See, God's nature fundamentally is holy. God is holy. So he is completely set apart from all of his creation. God stands alone. He is unique. He is one of a kind. He has no rival. He's completely good and pure. See, God defines holiness. So don't think that God is holy because he does good things. God didn't earn his holiness. It's not as though God is holy because he keeps the law. No, it's quite the opposite. The law is holy because it reveals the character of God. See, God's holiness is his moral purity. Really, his holiness is his essence, his divine essence. To be God is to be holy. So when we just sung that, Jesus, you are holy, we're saying, Jesus, you are God. And so his infinite perfections can be summed up in one word, holy. So God is. Worthy, and since He alone is worthy, He deserves our affections and our obedience. And Ezra saw it. Ezra saw the holiness of God revealed in His Word, this truly breathtaking, stunning holiness that God is revealed in His Word because He had committed to study the Word, to do the Word, and to teach the Word. And you see this in verse 2, where God's people are called a holy race. That, the word there is, is better translated a holy offspring. And so God chose his people, his children, his offspring to be holy. The ultimate offspring, the ultimate seed that's holy is Messiah, Jesus. But those who have faith in him Are to be holy. And so God is holy, and knowing and belonging to Him means that our lives must look different from those who don't know God as their Savior. Our lives must be different. So we're called to reflect the holiness of God, His character, and how we live our lives. So all of our thoughts, desires, words, actions are to be holy. But sometimes it happens to us that we get so preoccupied with life, and life can be really hard and fast and busy, and we get so preoccupied with things of this world that we actually fail to see the glory of God. We miss it because our gaze is elsewhere. So if you want to experience the restoration of God in your life, if you want to experience Healing from those deep wounds on your soul, if you want freedom from the idols that would enslave you, step one is seeing the truly stunning holiness of God. Step two in this path to restoration is seeing the extent of your sin before God. You must truly see your sin before God. So when we read the Bible and we accept it, now this is key because we can read the Bible and then argue with it or question it or doubt it or try to deny it. But when we read the Bible and then we accept it as the word of God and we submit ourselves to the authority of the Bible without questioning it. Yes, you can ask questions, but questioning authority is a different thing. So when we read it, submit ourselves to it, you know what happens to us? Our sin is then exposed. We see our sin. That's what happened with the Israelites. So For the first time, hearing Ezra teach God's word, and now they're coming out and saying, oh, but there's sin in our lives, and now they're seeing it as being exposed, and they're seeing the extent of their sin. So let me ask you a question on this topic. Do you find it easy to see the sin of others But you have a hard time seeing your own sin. When all of us fall into that tendency of being very quick to see where others have their problems, you can make a list of your wife's problems, but your list would be quite short. I'm sure if we talk to her, she can make a long list of your stuff too. The reality is when, when we don't see our own sin, it's because we're resisting the spirit of God. We're quenching the spirit. We're not allowing God's spirit to freely work and expose our sin that all of us have. So we're not submitting ourselves to the authority of God's word. And so we must not do that. We must see our sin for what it is. So, but oftentimes in what we do, we try to deny our sin well maybe maybe you're you're more astute than that, and you won't deny it, but maybe you're going to minimize it or you can excuse it away so yes, I have a problem but it's a very small one really it's probably not that small so denying or minimizing or excusing blaming others or your unique circumstances or again shifting blame to other people or trying to flat out hide our sin if if you are you going to take any of these paths of denying, minimizing, excusing, blaming and you also want to experience the freedom, the transformation, the healing and restoration of God it's not going to happen it won't happen unless we're truly honest with ourselves about who we are before God and honest about our shortcomings and honest with those closest to us, and honest with God, stop the denying, we won't experience restoration. We need to see the extent of our sin. See, if we have a very shallow awareness of our sin, it will not lead to restoration. It won't. It will leave us in our same place. And this truth is revealed here in Ezra chapter 9. You see it in verse 1. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, that's the leaders, so the people, even the leaders, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. It says in verse 2. So what are the abominations? It says, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? What's so bad if an Israelite marries a non-Israelite? If an Israelite marries someone that's from a different nationality, a different ethnicity. well, What is this racism? Does God not like interracial marriages? Why is the Bible here against marrying foreign women? I don't understand. What's What's the big deal? This archaic Bible, I don't understand it. The issue here with these mixed marriages is not nationality. Hear me. This is not about race or nationality. This is not about racism. This is about holiness. This is about holiness before God. Verse 1 again, it says, God's people, says, had not separated themselves. To be holy is to be set apart. God is holy. He's set apart from creation. He's totally other. He is pure. And so to be holy, us, is to be set apart to serve God. That's what it means. And so to not be separated means to not be holy. It's walking with God. So instead, these wives were, were committing, it says, abominations, great evil before God. And so they were not being separate to serve God. God. So they, they were not displaying the character and glory of God. They were not truly following him. And verse 2 calls this act of marrying these foreign women of, that don't worship God, he calls it faithlessness. So it's breaking faith with God. So the issue here is faith. The issue here is truly spiritual. They weren't reflecting the glory of God to a watching World. Now, I want you to think back to a few weeks ago when we were looking at Ezra chapter 6, when they came back to the land and they built the temple and then they were celebrating Passover. Do you remember what happened in Ezra 6.21? It says that they had Passover, it says, and also everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So you had non-Jews, people from different ethnicities that had joined the people of God and were there with them because they had done what? Separated themselves. They had fallen, or I'm sorry, they were following the one true God. And so what you see is there has never been a racial distinction between the people of God. In the Old Testament and today, it's always been about faith. So when it's trusting in God, they're part of the people of God, and race has nothing to do with it. Anyone is welcome to join as long as they're truly going to follow the one true God. And so it, this was not about race. This was not about nationality. It was about immorality. And how these women did not want to trust and follow the God of Israel. And verse 3 says that their, their hearts, they're broken. That Ezra is so broken. It says he tore his garment and his cloak and he pulled hair from his head and beard. And he sat appalled. He was showing great sorrow and brokenness over the sin. He falls on his knees and he spreads his hands out and he cries out to God. We read it a second ago in verse 6. He says, oh, my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. What causes you to blush? I'm serious. What causes you to blush? We live in an age where it seems like no one blushes anymore. No one is ever embarrassed. No one is ever ashamed. There's no more modesty, and there's, there's no more sense of, we should not be laughing at this. This is serious, and there's no blushing anymore. But here Ezra is blushing and he's ashamed. He's recognizing who God is and he's, he has seen the stunning holiness of God. And now he is seeing the extent of their sin. And you can't see your sin till so you first see that God is holy. Because if you don't have the standard, if you don't see that God is holy, you won't see yourself as sinful. You'll deny and excuse it away. But when we see that God is holy... We see that we are guilty. And you see it in verse 10. He says, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. He's like, what can we say? We've forsaken you. We're sinful. We're guilty before you. Verses. 11 through 15, finishing this chapter, Ezra is recognizing, he's talking about how marrying women that don't follow God has been great evil. You see, God, people were called to live consistently with who they are, a holy nation set apart for service to God. So for a child of God to marry someone who does not love Jesus should be as unthinkable as someone in Lord of the Rings marrying an orc. Now, illustrations are not perfect, and they all fall short, but it should be unthinkable. If you are here in the room, and you're single, and you're even contemplating dating someone who's not a follower of Jesus, That idea should be repulsive to you. It should be unthinkable to you. How could you possibly, being a member of the kingdom of light, how could you possibly give yourself to marry someone in the kingdom of darkness? It should be unheard of. It shouldn't even be an option. Because what are you going to talk about? You can't even talk about your faith, which is the most important thing to you. You can't share what's deepest inside of you. Who you are fundamentally is you're a believer in Jesus. Your identity is a child of the king, a member of the kingdom. And so you don't share that with a non-believer. So you can't share your experience of God. You can't fellowship with your spouse. That should be unthinkable. You're non-option. And so, if you're even considering that, I encourage you don't even date unbelievers, much less even have the thought of marrying one. Marry someone that you can share the deepest possible reality of who you are, and that's your experience of God. That's who you date, that's who you marry, and you be patient. Don't rush. Don't do it. You know, one thing our church doesn't have, I wish we did have more of, is senior citizens. I'm serious. No one's old in our church. The, I mean, Bud raised his hand, but Bud's not old. Um, we, we don't have. There's no one in our church that is old. No one is over 70 or 80. And I mean, I see it as a whole. I wish we did. Because those that are older have so much wisdom and life experience to share. And I know Abu Dhabi is unique, and so we work with who God's provided. And so if you're over 40, you're old. For Abu Dhabi standards. I mean, you're not actually old, but you know, for us here, you are. So we need your wisdom. You talk to older adults. I mean, legitimately older 70, 80-year-old people, and they'll all tell you, One of the biggest decisions you'll ever make is who you marry. Don't be foolish in who you marry. Be very careful. And what's crazy is you're you're deciding who to marry at the time that you're the most foolish in your life. In your teens or in your 20s when you don't know anything. And then you're making the biggest decision of your life in who you marry. Which is why teenagers in the room, listen to your parents. Teenagers, I'm serious. Your parents know more than you. I know you don't think, but they do know more than you. They've lived longer than you. Listen to them. Seek counsel from other people besides your parents. Who you marry will impact the rest of your life. You can't even begin to imagine how. What has life to do with darkness? And so what you're seeing here is God takes this very seriously. Very seriously. You see it in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. Listen to him. He's tearing his clothes. He's pulling out his hair. He's broken, he's weeping, he's cast himself down in the temple. He says, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. So you see here, even the other people have heard the word from Ezra, they're seeing his brokenness, and now they're weeping, they're broken over their sin. They now hate their sin. You see the first half of verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, the son of Elam, address Ezra. We have broken faith with our God. There's the issue. Broken faith with our God. And have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. They recognize their sin. No minimizing. No denying. No arguing away. Just humble brokenness over their sin. A shallow view of your sin will not lead to restoration. This path of God's restoration begins, number one, with seeing the stunning holiness of God. And then secondly, seeing the extent of your sinfulness. This is the path. Third step in this path. Being in awe of the grace of God. You want restoration? You have to be overwhelmed and truly be in awe of God's grace. You see it in verse 2. We read the first half. But it says we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. Listen to this. I love this. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. There is hope. Do you hear that? There is hope. Hope. There is hope for what? There is hope for your marriage. There is hope for your broken relationships. There is hope for your addiction that you can, by the power of the Spirit, overcome it. There is hope for your depression. There is hope for you because you keep getting so angry and exploding. There's hope for you. There's hope for the weak. There is hope. And his name is Jesus. And you see this in Ezra 9 and 10. Ezra is pointing to Jesus. Ezra did not sin in this way. Ezra didn't take a wife that didn't follow God. And yet Ezra is so broken. And Ezra says, our sin, our guilt, our abominations, our iniquity, we need you. And so Ezra... Even though he didn't sin, he did not break faith with God. He cries out to God. So here he is interceding on behalf of the sinful people. He's associating with sinful people, interceding for them even though he did not sin. Who does that sound like to you? That's Jesus. Ezra is foreshadowing Messiah. He is pointing to Christ who is the ultimate Ezra, who reveals God to us. The ultimate, final, better Ezra, who was without sin, who intercedes for you and for me, and who died in our place and was resurrected powerfully. This chapter is permeated with God's grace. You see in 9 verse 4, talking about sacrifices That is grace providing a substitute. 9 verse 9 says he extends steadfast love. God loves us. Verse 15 in chapter 9, you have a remnant. That is God's grace. So everything in in Ezra 9 and 10 is pointing to grace in the middle of judgment. Where we sin, God's grace is stronger. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. God loves you despite your sin. He truly loves you. How do you know? If you're here and if you're doubting that, how do you know for sure that God really loves and accepts you? Look to the cross. The cross proves it. There is no greater display of love than Christ dying for you. Are we truly overwhelmed by God's grace? If you want to have restoration, it begins with seeing that God is holy, seeing that you're a sinner, and seeing the grace of God in your life. Number four, last step in this path to restoration is responding to God with repentance. We must respond with repentance to be restored. And so this is what God's revealing. If you want healing and freedom and transformation in your life, you see God's holiness, you see your sin, you see his grace, and you respond to all of that amazing truth with repentance. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, the priest Ezra gathers a large assembly of Jews with him in the temple, and he leads the leaders, the, the priest and Levi, to take an oath to promise to put away their wives, to be separated from their unbelieving wives. And then he calls more. All of the Jews come together in chapter 10, let's read verses 9 through 12. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. And all the people sat down in the open square before the house of God, Trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women. And so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, it is so, we must do as you have said. So they're all trembling because it's December, so it's cold and it's raining and they're out in the open. But they're trembling also, it says, because of the seriousness of the matter of of what's being said and what's before them. And it says here that they repented of their sin and they committed to separate themselves from the evil, and in this case, from their unbelieving wives. Now, in chapter 10, verses 13 through 17, it describes how the leaders carefully examined every single family to see if indeed there was a believing husband and a wife that refused to leave the idols and follow the one true God. And then the chapter to close, verses 18 through 43, you have the list. Of over 100 people that were found guilty. So out of 50,000, a little over 100 were found guilty. So it wasn't even that many. But that isn't the point. The point isn't how many, the point is sin in the camp. And so these people were found to be guilty. And the final verse of the, chapter, of, of the book, rather, 1044, says... All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. And that's how the book ends. Now, Nehemiah continues the same book. It's separated, but it's the same story. We'll look at that next week. So these women and their children would go back to live with their original families and their, their parents. And so they left their husbands. Now, this part of the Bible is descriptive, not prescriptive. This is kind of weird to us, right? 21st century, we're like, man, that's just crazy. All of these women are sent away with children to go live with their families and no longer be married to their husbands. And so it sounds kind of strange to us, but what we're seeing here is this is, again, descriptive. It's describing what happened. It's not prescriptive. It's not telling us what we must do. This is a very unique situation during this era of restoration in Israel's history. If you look in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, we don't have time today, chapter 7, it describes clearly that if someone is married to an unbeliever and that person refuses to trust Jesus, you should not leave. So in this church, there are people that are married to an unbeliever, and you're still married, and you should stay married. You ought not divorce your spouse because they don't trust Jesus. We're told in that passage in 1 Corinthians 7 that the the believing spouse should be an example of godliness and not leave and pray that God will then use your example of being a a believer of Grace, and then God will save your unbelieving spouse. So if you're here today and your spouse does not follow Jesus, you'll be the best example of Jesus so that he can see the evidence of grace in your life and we'll pray that he or she will get so hungry for it that they will repent and trust in Jesus as well. But in this unique era In redemptive history, this was what happened. But here's a primary truth. Here's what we need to understand from this. And here's the main idea. So today we'll see at the end as we kind of wrap things up. In order to experience restoration, we must repent before God. If there's no repentance, then there's no restoration. And repentance, what the word means is to turn around, to turn away. And so to repent is to agree with God, to agree on what he says about us, and to say, because I agree that I'm a sinner and that I need your grace, I'm going to turn away from this sin. I'm going to turn away from it. And so repentance and faith go hand in hand. Same coin, two sides, faith and repentance. And so we turn away from the sin and we turn towards God, trusting him. When we're not seeing our lives change, it's evidence that we need more repentance and more trust in God. But it has to go deeper than behavior. Our behavior is just a symptom. I'm going to put up here on the screens heart idols. Just here briefly, if you want to jot those down. Our our bad behavior at its root is either a desire for power or approval or comfort or control. And so whatever the sin is, it doesn't really matter. Pornography, lying, gossip, anger, laziness, unforgiveness. Pick any sin. At its root, it's one or more of these sinful desires that's being manifested with that behavior. So you have to repent of the behavior, but you have to look deeper. Say, God, what's going on? Looking at pornography because of desire for comfort or for control. I won't forgive because I want power over the other person. I'm lazy because I I just want my own comforts and I don't want to have my my comfort in Christ. Whatever it is, our, our behaviors have something much deeper. These heart idols that we have to ask God to reveal to us and repent of that heart idol as much as of the surface one that is evidenced in our behavior. Repentance brings refreshing with God. We repent, we sense his presence, and we enjoy him again. So if you're here today and you've never given your life to Christ, the first step for you to be restored to him with all of your heart, repent of your sin, and trust in Jesus alone, If you are a believer, as many of us are, we focus daily on his word and in prayer. And we will see his holiness. We will see our sin. We'll be overwhelmed by his grace and that will lead us to repent and to experience the restoration that we so desire. So that others will see our lives and believe our message. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you thank you for having loved us and sent your son to save us. Thank you that you, through your spirit, restore us. We pray that you would do more healing and more restoring in our lives. We need more of you and less of us. Be at work in this place. And we thank you for we know that you are. And we just pray here together in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.